Hello and welcome. My name is Brian and you're listening to Friends in Music with Brian Doherty. That's me. A podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please feel free to get in touch. Also, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform. And most importantly, thank you for listening. My guest today is Colette Bear. Colette is definitely obsessed with music, as she is a music educator, music director, arts advocate, and grant writer. She has served as choir director, band director, vocal and piano instructor, and drum circle facilitator. She's also presented in front of Senate members on why music, why we need music education in our schools. She's a featured journalist and contributes to a number of publications, including USA Today. Colette even hosts her own podcast called Colette's Music Hour, where she interviews musicians, music educators, and teachers and arts advocates. You can listen to her podcast on your chosen platform. Let's welcome Colette. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and and what you do? Sure. Well, that's a very good question. I do a lot of things, um, but I am. Go for it. <laughs> I'm just finishing up my 13th year as a music teacher in New York State. Uh, my experience is a mix between Westchester County and New York City, and I've been teaching in the public and private schools for the past 13 years, which has been such a great experience for me so far. Um, that's my day job, my full-time position. But I also do a lot of uh, side projects, side gigs. I've played for a lot of like off-Broadway um, auditions and done some vocal coaching and accompanying around the city. And, you know, life as a musician in New York City, you just, you know, you do everything, performance, teach. Uh, I, I'm really into the live music scene. I used to be more on the business side of it. I also freelance as a music journalist. I started doing that actually before I started teaching and working in the music licensing world and right out of college. And then I realized I'm a, I'm a musician. I want to be performing. And although the classroom isn't always known as, you know, the performance place for musicians, it is for me because I actually prefer the collaborative music making experience. So for me, I really love just being able to play the piano, sing with my kids, have drum circles. And I really like that hands-on approach in the classroom. So for me, performance is really important and just providing students with that experience too. So I've really enjoyed all 13 years I've been teaching. It flies by. I felt, I feel like I just graduated yesterday, but I can't believe believe it. It it does fly by. Take, take us back to the beginning where like, when did you start? How did you start? When did you know you wanted to play music? Yeah, that's a great question. What are some of your inspirations and so on? Definitely. So I grew up with a piano in my house. Um, my my going back even like two generations. My grandma, um, she was an accordion player. I'm from Central New York, um, so my grandmother would perform in the parades, and she was very musical. Um, so my mom took piano because my grandmother knew that music was very important. And my mom took piano, but she didn't go any. She didn't really go that far with music. Um, she knows how to play piano. She plays some classical pieces, and so when I was growing up, my mom knew that she wanted me. She decided for me that she wanted me to be a musician. (laughs) So she bought me a piano. And when I was four, my mom started teaching me 
Early's by Beethoven. I don't know why she picked that as my first piece to ever learn, but um, she did. Classic. So, it's a classic. <laughs> it is, but I mean, I've worked with a lot of four-year-olds and I, honestly, that wouldn't be the first yeah. choice for me that I would choose. But anyway, I picked it up very quickly uh, and my mom could see that. And when I was four, I was, I, this is not my decision. This is my mom's. She decided that I was already better than she was and she didn't know how to teach me anymore. So I remember being five years old and my mom would take me to auditions with all of these piano teachers all over Syracuse. And it was really hard for me to find a teacher. I don't know um, if you had this experience growing up and trying to find a teacher, but I was, I, this is a very vivid memory for me, like being five years old, being like paraded around Syracuse to all these piano teachers and auditioning. And uh, it was weird because Wait, auditioning, home, uh, auditioning for teachers? Auditioning for teachers. It was really weird. And especially being in Syracuse, you'd think like people would say, hey, you're five. We'll just teach you. But How can can we make that happen now? I know. (laughs) I know. Around here, like there was a very, very like active music scene. I remember growing up that... I, I was in a in an organization growing up where I was coaching my small ensembles when I was nine. And it was just, it's a very um, musically rich place. But I was auditioning for a lot of different music teachers. And then I turned six and my mom was like, you really need a teacher. We really need to find someone for you. And I auditioned for one teacher and she was two blocks away from the house I grew up in. And before I started, I heard her whispering to my mom in the other room and she's like, I have a full studio. I can't take Colette. I I have too many students. And this was before she heard me play. And I remember this conversation because I was sitting at the piano waiting to play for Elise by Beethoven. And my mom always at home was like, Colette, you're amazing. And then I would go play for these piano teachers and they would just say, we don't have space. And they were just very dismissive. And feeling that at age five, I mean, that prepared me for the world of <laughs> the world of music world and of music. Yeah. Yeah. Where you get the door slammed in your face sometimes. But I think that prepared me for life in general at a very early age. But finally I auditioned for this one teacher and she heard me play. Although she said before I played, there's no way she would be able to take me after I played for her. She looked at my mom and she said, I'm accepting her into my studio. There's no way I can pass this up. And I just remember being there and even really at a really young age, just thinking, Oh my gosh, like I just, I feel like I'm accepted now. And I always worked really hard. I always practiced a lot. I know there are a lot of pianists and musicians who are way better than I am. And I've met a lot of them at like summer camps and piano institutes I've been to over the years. And that's, you know, it's kind of a wake up call when you're, you know, at your high school or you're in your, your town and you're one of the best musicians and you go to these international piano camps. And I'm sure you had a lot of experiences like this growing up too, where, or maybe you didn't because (laughs) I'm not sure, but I did. And so I would be at these camps and I would think, oh yeah, like I I know I'm one of like the better musicians from my area because I'm always winning these competitions growing up, like through elementary school and middle school and high school. And then I'd go to these piano institutes with students from all around the world and they'd be in their practice rooms for like 12 hours a day. And I thought when I was practicing for eight hours a day in high school that I was pretty good and it's sort of a wake up call. But so I started as more of like a piano performance um, person and I applied to colleges for, um, I only applied to two different 
um, programs. Um, I applied as a piano performance major and I decided if I didn't want to be a pianist, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so oh. all the other, pro- all the other programs I applied to were aeronautical engineering. So I was like, I either want to be a musician or I want to go to space and, um, I haven't been to space yet. So <laughs> that's <laughs> next on know- the list. <laughs> Wait, take us, take us back. So you're, you're going through school and are you watching other kids go the, the other route, which is like school band, chorus and so on yeah and and as are you associating with with these musicians and you know of course of course (laughs) tell us about that yeah uh there's definitely different levels of making music as we all know as music educators and musicians and obviously there's different levels so it was strange for me because I did start taking piano lessons before I started band in school so in my school we started band in fourth grade. So I was always in band. I was always in chorus. Um, so from, what would you play in band? So you're the, you're a, you're a piano player, right? Yes. I actually started, well, actually, um, in fourth grade, they went through all of the instruments and they said, these are the instruments we have to choose from. And I really wanted to play the clarinet because I'd seen videos of people playing clarinet and, you know, like jazz bands and things and clarinet's very prominent and has a really cool sound. And so you're supposed to stand up when you wanted to try out an audition on an instrument, um, which I thought was an interesting idea because I don't have my kids start instruments that way. Like you were supposed to stand up and audition before you ever even played the instrument. It was a very strange idea. Interesting concept, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't do that in my class. Um, but anyway, so they went through the woodwinds and they got to clarinet and they said, if you want to play clarinet, stand up. And then as soon as I stood up, they said, if you want to play flute, stand up. So I actually was standing for clarinet, um, but I was given a flute instead. And uh, so I actually played flute. I did. It wasn't my first choice, though, but I did play it from fourth grade to 12th grade. And but aren't you was, at this time because I, I aren't, aren't you like, wait, I, I just want to want to play piano. Um, I mean, how is it? How is it so easy just to accept other instruments at that age? Are you are, right? Oh, so yes, the open-minded approach. I guess I had that from a young age because, so I'll backtrack a little bit. When I started playing piano, when my mom started teaching me, and then I got my teacher when I was six, um, when I started studying with my piano teacher, she actually was the organist at our local church where I, where we went, my family went to church there. And so she had this interesting technique where anyone who took piano lessons with her, she would persuade them to join the choir. So it's actually a very exciting technique of building your choir at the same time. So thankfully, I was not only learning piano from a young age, but I joined the church choir right after I started taking piano lessons. And um, I was very open to any instrument. I think um, I think it was, I would just see something or go to a performance. My mom started taking me to concerts when I was four. And so we would go to the symphony every weekend and we would go see, you know, rock bands locally and things like that. And so my mom just really exposed me to all genres and all instruments. And I would just go to these concerts and see musicians and anywhere from, you know, Billy Joel on stage when I was four to like George Winston or like the Syracuse Symphony that is non-existent anymore, but we used to go, my mom and I would go every weekend. And so I think just being exposed to a lot of music opened me up to, oh my gosh, that guy's playing a string bass on stage. I want to play a string bass. And I think it was more just exploratory for me because I, 
I wanted to play every instrument and obviously, well, um, so my parents couldn't buy every instrument for me. And so that's how I took piano and flew and was in the choir because you don't have to buy an instrument to be in the choir. So it was more that I couldn't buy every instrument and keep them at my house. I mean, I'm sure I would have probably studied more instruments, but thankfully when I got to college, um, I went to Syracuse for undergrad and for my um, first master's. And when you're in the music ed program there, you actually test out of every instrument. So you have to take all the string instruments, all the woodwind instruments, all the brass instruments. And so when I finally got to grad school, I was able to finally that, learn the cello. How does cello. that work, by the way? So are you, do you, do you take, you know, a semester of strings and then you get one week on each instrument? How, how does that work? What lead us, what, walk us through that. It was very interesting. So I actually wasn't aware of this before I started the music ed program there. Um, I graduated from college when I was 20 and I, all I knew was I don't want to start working at the age of 20. I want to get my master's and then go out into the world. And also I needed some time because I was freelance writing for a magazine. I thought I wanted to go to law school to become an entertainment lawyer. And I just didn't know where I wanted to end up, but I knew I wanted to be in the music field. So I sort of ended up in graduate school for music ed at more or less because I, w- I really wanted a master's degree before I went into the, the world of working mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. But um, I knew that I wanted to have more education and just be more well-rounded. So I ended up in graduate school for music ed. And then I found out we got to learn so many instruments. And so in my class, it was actually through graduate school. So it was set up by semesters. And um, so we would have methods classes. So it wasn't a week on each instrument. And honestly, I, I graduated from college 15 years ago. So I um, this is this is a while ago now. It was only yeah. last year. So I can't tell you how many days and how many hours I actually practiced each instrument for. But I do remember practicing multiple instruments at a time. But it wasn't like I was playing like all the strings and all the woodwinds. It would be like... I was practicing trumpet and I was practicing clarinet and you would have a few weeks. So, um, it was kind of like being, um, a a piano major and I would, you know, lock myself in a practice room for hours, um, in undergrad, but then in grad school, I would do the same thing, but with a lot of instruments. And if I took my instruments home with me, um, we had a dog at my mom's house and, he would sing along with me. So I would want to just lock myself in a practice room at school. It was so much easier. So we would have a couple weeks and then they would give us um, the, the dates of our, not juries, but performance exams. And Did you ever day. feel like you couldn't get enough piano practice in? Do you ever feel like, right, as you're... I think I've always felt like that. I mean, as a musician, I was always, I always had teachers. Mm, I've had some very good teachers, but I've also had some teachers uh, who make it seem like you, no matter how many hours you practice, you'll never get there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. uh, I've always felt like I haven't practiced enough. Even when I was practicing eight hours a day in high school, um, just the piano, um, I know my sisters probably didn't enjoy that, but my mom would say, you know, Colette's going to school for piano. So she has to be up at 4am and she'll also be practicing after school and before we, nice. she goes to bed. So my mom was very, um, very vocal about, it's very important that Colette gets her practice time. And so I couldn't imagine being my sisters when they have to be silent when I, when I was practicing all the time, but I've always felt like I have never had enough practice time, regardless of if I was practicing an hour a day or eight hours a day. So I think that's like the, the plight of the musician, right? 
Right. You always feel no matter what you 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 get your two hours your or your hour now, right? And you feel like oh, that's nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, I wish I, I could, could do so much more. <laughs> so take us yeah. back through college. So you're in college. You're in your master's program for education, right? Music right. education. Music and then, and then what? And then I was just very open to the idea of teaching music. I mean, I guess before I had never said, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a music teacher. I never actually thought that growing up. I always thought, you know, I, I know I want to play the piano, but I didn't know what job you could have. I never saw anyone who had a job like that. And um, even now, I mean, even as an adult, like what, who do you know that just plays piano and that's yeah. all they do? Even yeah. my piano professors at school, you know, they were doing a lot of research or doing a lot of performances or teaching. Like right. I haven't met anyone who just performs. So I guess because I had never seen that, I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be um, musical in, in my career. So in grad school, I was sort of using it as a test of, is this really for me? Like, could I really be a music teacher? Would I enjoy it? And so I was learning all these instruments and same thing that we were just discussing. I felt like I never had enough practice time. And so I was like, I don't know, like, is this what I want to do? So then I figured at the end of grad school, um, when I had my student teaching, it was my, it was one of my first experiences in the classroom. I thought I was going to do Peace Corps right out of undergrad. And so I, I did literacy core. And so I was tutoring in the inner city schools in Syracuse. And that was actually my first time I was ever exposed to being in a school, like on the um, more instructor side of it. No, no one can ever uh, accuse you of being an underachiever. (laughs) Well, thanks. Well, I, I think that every day I'm like, how can I like do more, like get more done. Um, So when I was in literacy corps in undergrad, actually, like that was my first experience actually being in a classroom in a school, not as a teacher, obviously, because I was more a tutor, but just seeing it from more of the adult standpoint. And I really liked it, even though I wasn't doing anything musical. Um, it really made me think. So that wasn't always in the back of my head when I was in grad school, like maybe I really would like being in a school. So I figured you know, it's the end of grad school. Um, I have student teaching. I'll either know I really want to do this or I don't. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I went into my student teaching. I absolutely loved it. I had two placements. Um, and I, I loved it. And obviously, you know, 13 years later, I'm still doing it. And I think that it's all about your mindset. And so for me, it's always been about like how I challenge myself and always am looking to do new things and have new approaches to my teaching. And, um, I have had hurdles before and in my personal and professional life. And I feel like it's always about for me having new goals, like short-term goals, goals for the day, goals for the week, goals for the month, obviously as a musician and music teacher, you know, you're always looking forward to your holiday concert or your spring concert or things like that. So I think that that's, that's always been exciting for me. So it's so how do you be- end up in the world of public education or actually wait, so we can go any direction here. Cause I know that you've traveled, right? Have you taught abroad? I have a couple so times. Why don't you, why don't you bring us there? And then we could talk about some public education afterward. Sure. I've had a very interesting life. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. This, this um, is why we're here. Tell, tell us about it. <laughs> Sometimes I start talking about things I've done and I'm like, wait, is this really my life? (laughs) Uh, I I have like out of body experiences and don't realize it's really me. But 
Um, yeah, so I was going to join Peace Corps right out of school. I'd always, I hadn't ever traveled or had the chance to travel um, when I was growing up. Actually, I thought that maybe like we did a French exchange in my high school, but September 11th happened my senior year of high school. So that, that was always, uh, that obviously changed the world and traveling for, for Americans. Um, and it was a life-changing experience, but I thought maybe in high school that would be like my only opportunity to travel. That happened, obviously all travel was canceled that year and I'd always wanted to travel and go somewhere. Um, my family, we never were big travelers growing up. Like we would go like locally to places, but never like big trips abroad. So in college, um, in undergrad, I just really wanted to, I don't know, just like get out of college. Every time I tell mm -hmm. this story, people are like, you didn't like college. I'm like, I don't know. I just wanted to like finish early. So I did my undergrad in three years. And then I, uh, was like, I'm going to, I'm 20. I want to join Peace Corps. So I was looking at, that was one of my options right after finishing undergrad. Mm -hmm. And and um, I had my ship out date, my country. I was going to go to the sub-Saharan Africa and spend two years there. And I was so excited. And then um, I was talking to some people about it. Had you done any research on it? Did you know exactly what you were getting into? I had done a ton of research. Yeah. I'm one of those people who have to, I have to research a ton before I make a decision. And I have to always bounce ideas off people um, just because sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. But then, you know, sometimes you have a discussion with someone, you're like, oh. And then you pull back a little bit. Uh, yeah, maybe you should reconsider. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, so I ended up not going, but it wasn't because I don't believe in that experience. I think that it's very enriching for, you know, people I know who've done Peace Corps and everything, but I wanted to volunteer more on a long-term basis. And I didn't want to just go away for two years, be like sort of cut off from the world, my family. Um, I, no one in my family travels. Well, up until that point, they hadn't. And so I knew that if I was in the sub-Saharan Africa, nobody would come visit me from my family. Like maybe a friend or two would visit, but I wouldn't, I literally wouldn't see my family for two years. So it, it made me start thinking about, do I really want to go and not see maybe anyone I know for two years? So I also was thinking that I always loved volunteering and I wanted to do it on a more long-term basis. So I figured, you know, if I started teaching, then every summer I could just go abroad and for the whole summer I could just teach abroad. And that way I would have income. I would actually, because in Peace Corps at that time, I don't know if it's different now. Um, you didn't actually have a, you didn't have any income for two years. So I was like, how do I, not even how do I housing? live? Wow. Well, you don't have, I mean, I think they give you housing. It's, it might be different now because this was 15 years ago, but I knew that I wouldn't have any income coming in. And I was always one of those people who worked uh, since I was 14. So by that time I had been working for years. Um, I had a church gig and I were, had some other local jobs. And so since I was 14, I just like saved a ton of money and um, I knew I needed an income. Like I couldn't not work for two years. I'm, uh, I, I didn't have anything to fall back on and I, I definitely hadn't saved enough to live for two years without mm -hmm. an income. So I thought, you know, if I'm teaching full time, I at least have that coming in and then I can be traveling over breaks and vacations and things like that and be exposed to um, different different cultures. And I'd always been really interested in traveling and studying music from different areas of the world. And so that made me really excited about volunteering more long-term. And so for the first 
the first, uh, I would say 10 years I was teaching, I would go away every summer. And I always was really drawn to like music from the Middle East and African music. And I wanted to be there and I wanted to meet kids from other countries and work in schools and orphanages. And um, I know that a lot of people usually when I have this conversation with them, they'll say, oh, well, you traveled, like you must um, have had like an amazing like resort experience. I honestly can tell you I've never, <laughs> I've never stayed in one of those high-end resorts. Um, I would be bringing my sleeping bag. Like, There's no all-inclusive in- where you're at. <laughs> Definitely not. I, I've never actually had that experience, um, but nor do I want to. And I know everyone has a different experience and different wants and needs when they're traveling, but my desire when I travel is to experience life like the locals. I want to like be in a public school in a third world country. I want to go to an orphanage. I want to meet kids. I want to I wanna meet orphanage and school staff and see what their problems are and what they need. Tell us about some of those summer teaching experiences. What, what, you know, give us one or two that stand out and some takeaways. Definitely. Um, well, I would say that all of them are very exciting and we're very different and every country, as I'm sure you can imagine is very different. Um, I've, been up to, I've been to 43 countries now, um, but my top two teaching abroad experiences were definitely in Turkey and in Tanzania. Uh, all, but all of my experiences have been um, very, very different and very exhilarating for different reasons. Um, so Egypt was actually the first country I'd gone to, and that was very eye-opening. I loved collaborating with other musicians there, but I wasn't teaching in the schools. Um, so I knew that after I went to Egypt, which was actually my first country ever other than Canada. I know that most people don't consider Canada too different and, uh, foreign from connecting, like, how are you making the connection to go over through what organization? What are you, what are you doing? Okay. So I, was sitting at my computer. I was like, I want to go abroad. How am I going to do this? So I started researching, obviously, what's the first thing you look up? Well, the first thing I looked up was teach abroad. And uh, what I was noticing, I'm not going to call any companies or organizations out, but what I noticed was, um, I don't know if you've ever looked that up, but uh, it's like $5,000 to teach in China for a summer. And that's what, that's what was coming up for me at least. And this was, you know, um, this was like 13 years ago. So I was like, okay, I want to teach. I want to volunteer. I don't mind sleeping on someone's floor, bringing a sleeping bag. And a lot, all, like I would say 90% of my travel experience has been like that. I te- take my own sleeping bag and I've either slept on someone's living room floor or in an orphanage or uh, like not usually in a hotel. It's usually just someone's house. Um, and it's in a third world country. So it's totally different than... Um, a hotel experience, but that's how I could afford to travel. So, you know, the plane tickets abroad are very expensive. So if I could live, if I could live somewhere for a summer for maybe $10 a day, including room and board, I mean, to me, that sounds like the life. I don't think everyone would say that, but for me, like I, I want to explore like what culture is like and what the community is like and what people do at home. Like uh, what I noticed was a lot of families have dinner together, like in a lot of countries, like that's very important. And what I've noticed in almost every country I've been in is it's all about that family unit. Like it's not about like um, being in New York city, you know, it's like, it's about the hustle there. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, how much money can you make? How many jobs do you have? How many side projects do you have? Especially like, the hustle as a musician in New York city. It's very different than 
um, growing up in a third world country, as I've seen and spoken to families and a lot of students from different countries where it's all about, you know, I want to provide for my family. I want to make sure my kids go to school. Um, they all have one outfit. So they're good. They ha- they're fed every day. So, you know, they're okay. And I think, Traveling and teaching abroad totally changed my experience just as a person um, and my outlook on the world. And honestly, I mean, I remember working with one uh, girl, I was in Tanzania and um, she was from Brazil actually. And she looked at me and she was like, how's your experience here? It was my first time in Tanzania. And I was like, it's very, very eye opening." And, uh, you know, it, culture shock, obviously, like it's very different. And she was like, you've never, you haven't seen anything yet. The culture shock is when you go home. Mm. And that stuck with me for years, but it's actually so true because, and I feel like it depends on like your mentality and like how you see the world and how open you are, because I definitely have met people who don't feel the same way on this topic. But for me, um, it changed my outlook of Americans and how I see people. And I think that it's, that's really important. And so whenever I meet people, especially young people, and I do a lot of talks at colleges and um, presentations and things, and people always ask me at the end, they're like, what is advice you have? Or what is, what is a takeaway that, you know, we should have? And I always say, um, travel, but not, not where you're going somewhere and just taking pictures of like a museum travel where you're like visiting a family or staying with a family because it's a totally different experience. But so a couple couple questions. What are you, are you teaching classroom or private instruction and how are you communicating with the students? Right. So in Tanzania, I was in an orphanage and I was in a public school. That's a great question, how to communicate because um, not a lot of people, especially in small villages speak English. And I've worked in places where I, some places I've met people and I'm the first American they've met, which I, I find is sort of, sort of exciting, but interesting that I'm the first American they've, they've had a, had a communication with. Um, so I try to do my best as a representative of the United States, but anyway, um, so I've had public school experience abroad, orphanage experience. I've also been in some private schools abroad too, and it depends on the country. Um, I was in one private school in um, one country and they were totally uh, okay. They were well-funded. They were like, we have enough funds, you know, um, we have everything we need. We're, we have a lot of resources in our school. And so, you know, in a third world country. And then I've been in other public schools um, in Tanzania where um, the kids didn't have desks. They had uniforms, but they sat on the floor, but there's no electricity. So are you like, teaching music and movement or general principles of music? Are, are you learning about their music? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I think it's good um, as an educator, but also as a, just a, a person professionally and personally to explore like their music too. So I would have um, kids teach me their music, but I think it's um, really important to like have that open dialogue both ways. Like I'm here to teach you, but I also am here to like absorb a lot from you too. Like, yeah teaching styles and things like that and what works in classrooms there. So um, it would be a mix of English and, ma- and music and movement and the language barrier obviously um, gets in the, in the way a little bit. But as you know, in a music class in that setting, you don't really need to have a lot of, you know, 
uh, discussion. You don't have to explain that much. Like, you know, with body percussion, you can jump right into, um, you can jump into something in a song and everyone can be playing a beat or, you know, singing along with you. And if you're teaching in the style of like rote, like, it's very easy for kids to pick up. So, and I think once you like do a couple activities and kids catch on, um, but I think that learning the local language, at least like basic, um, like greetings and things like that and ways to like communicate in the class, I think it's really important too, because then like the kids you're teaching see it from the other standpoint, we're like, oh, she's like trying to, you know, speak to us in our language. And, you know, so it goes both ways. I think it's, uh, an educational experience for both sides. Like I'm, I'm there to absorb as much as possible. And I think, I think that that's really important. And then after hours, are, what are you doing? Are you, are you there to absorb the culture and the music or are you just sightseeing or living with your, are you, are you exhausted after teaching and, you know, I'm exhausted just traveling. Like just, I mean, that's why I always try to book like a window of like three days on either side of like when I have to teach. Like if I I know I have to. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I meant um, just elaborate on your lifestyle as you're the teacher abroad. So what do you do when after, after class is over? What do you do at night? What are you doing, you know, to absorb the experience? Yeah, I think the time difference really affects me. So I always feel so tired when I've like traveled somewhere and like I'm there. Just like being on a different schedule, I think is mm-hmm. is it's very it's very hard on your body. But at the same time, I think that even though you're teaching all day, like, you know, and after a day of teaching, you could be totally exhausted. But I know that I'm only there for a certain amount of time. Maybe it's a month, two months, three months. And so I want to absorb as much as I can from like, um, local musicians and go to concerts and see what people are doing. And a lot of families, like when you're in a different country, a lot of families will like invite you in to like see their homes and like have dinner with you. And like, um, I've always met people who I've worked with in like organizations and they're more or less like a guide where they'll like help you around. They're like, Oh, come to my house tonight for dinner. Or like, we're going to this show, like come with us. So I feel like people are so welcoming and they know that you're not from that area and you don't know anyone. Um, or the people who, you know, it's a very small circle. So I feel like people want to show off their area too. So I have gone sightseeing. I mean, when I was uh, involved with the nonprofit in Egypt, um, I really wanted to go to the pyramids and there was only one other American in my organization at the time. And we were both volunteering. It was an international um, music camp that we did in one summer. And we basically were in an Egyptian band. We wrote all of our own music. We performed in the streets, which was exciting. But we were the only ones that wanted to go to the pyramids. And we were like, we want to go. Does anybody else want to go with us? And so these locals that we were working with, they were like, why do you want to go see the pyramids? They're just down the street. They're not even like that cool. And we're like, are you kidding me? You live down the street from the pyramids and you don't understand like how cool it is to go to, you know, Giza and like go inside a pyramid. So, um, I think that it's important to, you know, visit sites like that. Like, I mean, going inside a pyramid, like I don't ever think I'll be able to do that again because I mean, safety and like, obviously we're, the world is shut down now, but I'm hoping that I have that experience again. But I think it's important to like 
go explore the community and what's around there. But I am there to absorb like as much of the culture as possible. And just as a person who loves to research and loves to explore different cultures and music from different parts of the world, I think that like, that's my main motive. Like as I go places, like I want to learn. And so I think that like bringing that back into my own teaching is really cool too, where I can come back to New York state and say, not like talk all about like where I've been, but I know the like games they play or like a song or something. So I'll, I'll interweave that into my lesson. I won't go into a whole production of like, Oh, I was here this summer because a lot of the schools I've worked in, they're inner city schools. I understand that, um, uh, like they're very limited. A lot of them aren't traveling. I don't want to like, um, talk about my travels, but I do want to take my experiences and I want to teach my kids about, like music from different parts of the world. So when I'm teaching concepts like that in my class of world music, I focus more on, I'm going to teach you a song from Egypt or a song from Turkey and something like that. So I don't really go into like why we're singing that, but no, I'll know right. like it's because I was there and I learned gotcha. it. Something like that. So you, this is a great transition point because I, I did want to, you, you, you brought up your teaching. So it, when you were in school, did are you did you study different types of music pedagogy, like the philosophy of teaching and so on? So can you talk can you talk about how you teach your kids? That's what a you great do question. When you teach your kids, do you do you subscribe to a you know is it constantly changing? Does it is it class by class? Do you believe that it should be rhythm first and melody next, or what do you lead us through it? Talk talk us yeah. through it. I feel like every teacher is totally different. So I'll just talk about my experiences that I've had with my kids. Um, So most of my experiences have been in urban education. um, And so my main goal as an educator is, and as a music educator is to engage every student. So this past year in my school, I had over 700 kids and my main goal with all of them was to have them engaged in my lesson. So that can look totally different in, from like class to class, because I'm thinking about, there was, um, I had the second grade class last period on Fridays, mostly boys that looked totally different than maybe my pre-K class that only spoke Spanish. So it's, it's just like different ways. So I, my main goal is to have a hands-on experience with all of my classes, but I want every student in my room to be either playing or singing or dancing or conducting. I just, I want them engaged. So that's my goal. So I think that, um, are like, there, especially- are, there, are there chairs in your room? Chairs. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So in some of my classes, there have been chairs. In the two rooms I taught in this past year, there were chairs, but I like teaching in a circle and especially like my pre-K kids. So I had four-year-olds. They didn't sit in chairs. I actually brought a rug from my house and it actually filled up the whole room, um, which was pretty exciting. I was one of my successes this year. I was like, oh, I got a, I got a rug for my room. But all of my kids fit on it. I had 28 kids and that was my biggest class. And so like my pre-K and K kids, we would always sit in a circle and I would um, do a lot of movement with them. So I think it was just easier for um, those purposes, but I always want- I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm going to ask you sure. this, this question because I bump, I bump into this a lot, which is you can, sit, you can have your class set up 
second period for certain class and then third period sixth grade strolls in right so what do you do do you reset the class do you move desks back do you but do you ever think about the uh, the physical space before the kids actually walk in I do. I think that's really important. And I'm a very visual person. And I also want to see everyone's face and where, well, especially as a teacher, you always want to see where people's hands are. And I also teach middle school too. So, you know, you want to see, are they on their phone? Are they pulling it out? So I always want to see my kids. So I've always had my kids sit in circles depending on the space, but I always opt for having a circle because I think it's more inclusive. So like you just mentioned, grade levels are totally different. So what I did was I taught in two different spaces, but they're basically very similar. So with my uh, pre-K and K kids, we would sit in a circle and mostly, or I would have them come up closer to me. So we would sit in like two or three rows right in front. If I was doing like more um, Mm -hmm. engaging activity where I like really needed them to sit close to either pick up like body percussion or quiet activities that we were doing. And um, my eighth graders would come in and I would have the chairs in a circle outside of the rug. So I want to have like as much space as possible. So to optimize space, I would like push my chairs in, to be in a circle, but closer to the outside walls. And then my whole intersection is for dancing and, you know, right. moving around. And so I, like, that was the space I had this past year. So I haven't always ever, had a space. Do you like ever, um, did you ever teach on a cart, push into the rooms? Oh, I have. Um, that was very exciting. And so they just different. finished their social studies lesson and they're sitting in rows and you walk in and what happens? Oh my goodness. Teaching on a cart. That's a whole other topic. Um, so well, let's talk about it. Oh my goodness. I just am so excited whenever I'm in a placement and they're like, you get a classroom and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can put out posters because that's the thing. Like, so this is, and being on a cart has nothing to do with me personally. I think I always think about it from my students perspective. And this one particular school I was at, I was on a cart and they did it. It was in New York city, um, in the South Bronx, they didn't let the kids leave the class for the yeah. whole day. So, Listen, um, I'm there sure there have to be other music teachers listening to this now, nodding their heads. Right. Right. I'm sure. And I've seen just from a lot of the teacher forums lately, a lot of music teachers are going to be on a cart next year. So the biggest problem I had with a cart, I just feel bad for the kids because they can't move around and they're like stuck in a room one day or for hours in a day. And as a teacher, I want my room, my, I'm all about creating a comfortable space for my students. So when I've had a, a music classroom, uh, obviously that's the ideal situation. Um, just having like poster, like colorful posters up and like, I'll bring a rug or a lamp from home and things like that. Just to, like make it a more relaxed, comfortable right. environment. So they're like, Oh wow, I love your rug. And they like want to sit on it or something. You know what I mean? So I feel like the, um, teaching on a cart is obviously a challenge, but I feel like there are ways around it. So I would bring posters, put them up on the board, um, my posters. So obviously you're pushing into someone else's room. So, um, there's going to be someone else's classroom rules up, but obviously as a music teacher, our rules 
um, or guidelines or routines are totally different than a classroom teacher. So I think it's really important to have, you know, your own stuff up. So that could look like you're just like taking magnets and putting your own posters quickly up on the whiteboards behind Mm -hmm. you, something like that, or having like, um, I always like having props. I don't know. I think it's because I'm I try to be a visual storyteller and I want to like dance around and make it like very colorful for my kids. So I always like when I do Hawaiian music, I'll always have lays and like um, other instruments. And when I'm doing like African music in my class, I always want like a ton of jambes out. So I, I would always like load my card up with like, you know, posters I can quickly hang, um, like some props I can bring along and then I can like you know, throw those around the class and kind of change the space. I also think that um, having just like music playing. So when I have like, depending on your school and your routine and schedule, like, you know, sometimes you have a minute between classes or like three minutes. Transitional music. Yeah. 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 I think it's Mm -hmm. important as kids come in, obviously if you're on a cart, you're pushing into their space, but just to have like a minute of music while you're setting up or something. So um, I don't teach a lot of classical music in my own classrooms when I'm teaching. I do think it's important. I do weave it into my lesson, but I'm not going to have like an hour lesson on Beethoven, maybe like a five minute lesson on like furry lease or something. Um, But I think that it's important to use that um, time, that transition time, just to expose kids to different music too. So just maybe playing a minute of a classical piece while you're like setting up, maybe throwing your posters on the board or something. And it just like resets the tone of the room. I think that's the biggest challenge as a teacher who's going to be using a cart or pushing in because you're resetting the classroom environment to be music. And maybe you're in a math room or something and there's all math posters up, but you're coming in and you're trying to create that musical experience. So I think by something such as like, if the kids are facing you at the board, maybe you can like uh, put things up behind you. So they're like seeing lyric sheets on the board or like big posters or something like that. But I think like um, rededicating that space as a music space can be set with like posters, props. Um, I know that what I've pushed in before, um, but brought like a ton of instruments with me or something like that. The kids get really excited and they like totally forget about math. They're like, we're not even in the math room anymore. Like we're, we're so geared into like the drums and we want to, what did, what did you bring for us today? And I feel like the props, at least for me, I've seen like, I use instruments as a, instruments as like an incentive. I use it as a reward. I, when I see my kids are a little maybe chatty later, later in the day or later in the lesson, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to pick three drummers and everybody, you know, is very attentive after that and things like that. So I, I feel like when you bring props and you have like student leaders and conductors and drummers and things like that, like I use those positions in my class as rewards for my kids who are um, earning all their points and stuff like that. But it is definitely a challenge if you, are teaching on a car, um, I would I want, just say be creative. Yeah, yeah. Good, great, great advice, and thank you. <laughs> I want to talk about um, just one more point on your teaching. So it sounds to me like you want to give the kids a v- very, like, like a very thorough experience of conducting and moving and playing and exposure to different genres and stuff. But how much of the teaching, how much do you think we should be teaching vocal music to like K through six? And do you mean just, you, just vocal just or do singing? You, yeah. And, or do you always use it? Do you always fold it into an ensemble where kids are playing? Some kids are singing, some kids are playing. And the second part of that question would be, 
how do you get kids to sing who are reluctant? And do you ever run into that? Oh, yes. Reluctant singers, yeah. I've taught middle school. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, um, So that's one of the reasons why I add a lot of different like student leader and volunteer positions to my songs. I do think that like at the K through six level, I do think that um, obviously singing is very important. I think that helps develop kids' ears. I also think that when you're teaching kids to sing, it's it's easier for them to go home and practice. And, you know, and I, I mean, I'll teach a music class. I won't just do vocals though. Like I'll, I do a lot of grant writing. So even when I've been in schools where I've been hired just as a vocal person, like I have brought more instruments into the classroom, um, which I think is really important. But I also think that kids should be exposed to more than just vocal music because right. and I'm not saying vocal, just vocal is bad. Cause I know that um, in a lot of settings, that's all the kids are exposed to, which is totally fine. But you can also add things like body percussion in, or you like scat singing or acapella. Like there are different levels right. of just like, okay, we're going to do a three part, piece and in choir like there's different levels of making music or movement like just movement activity so there's a there's definitely a lot of different levels I've had um kids that are not maybe in love with singing or um you know that's not their first choice in the classroom but that's why for me it's really worked to bring those different instruments into the class. So, but I'm never singing like just for 45 minutes straight. It'll be like, Oh, I'm teaching a song for five minutes and then I need two drummers. And like, then I'll use those activities. So I'm all, I'm never doing the same thing. I think just for me as well, like I would get bored if I was doing the same thing for 45 minutes. And I think coming from that like summer camp background where you're like, you're trying to engage or even like in Tanzania, you're trying to engage everyone at the same time, keep it moving. And then also I think it's important as an educator to like gauge, gauge your kids. And like, if you see them like check out, you're like, okay, something I'm doing is not working. And like, just have, have from having student teachers um, in my classroom, I've seen that too, where you're like sitting and you're more like watching your kids, but you're watching your students interact with your student teacher. And then you can tell, I mean, even when I'm up in front of the room, but you notice it more when you're like seeing kids Mm -hmm. interact with like another adult, you can totally tell when they check out. So when I notice my kids doing that, I know that I have to like get up in front of them and like change activity or like change it up a little bit or like, I I often think of it as like the Catskills comedian who's like bombing, you know? You're yeah. like a comedian. As soon as your jokes aren't going over, well, then you got to change your material or, or, or consider your audience. So as soon as I see that things aren't connecting with this class or that class, keep it moving to the next thing. So you, do, you, do you always have other things back, like backup activities and, or things you're going to go to next or so on? I do. Actually, um, I've sent my lesson plans um, to some of my colleagues before and they're like, oh my gosh, Colette, you plan a lot of stuff. But Sometimes, I mean, my lesson plans are very detailed and I always will have like, I mean, depending on obviously your time constraints and your class level and skill level, you know, it depends obviously, but I'll always have, you know, 10 to 15 activities planned. Well, that doesn't mean we're going to get through all of them. Maybe we only get through three. I'm thinking of some particular classes, um, depending on like grade level and just size of the class too, because it's really important. I know we didn't talk about it yet, but 
classroom management. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, but unfortunately, sometimes, uh, you know, you're focusing on rules a lot in classroom management. But if you don't have classroom management, then you're not going to be able to get through anything. So my classes maybe where they are more focused that, you know, maybe we'll be able to get through like a ton of activities because we don't have to stop and like go over. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, these are the rules. Let's see who got all their points, things like that. So and then, for me, and then, it's very and then sometimes I, th- I think, Oh gee, well, if the, if the content was more engaging, then I wouldn't have kids hitting each other, but it's like I, a, it's like a balancing act. So I think it depends too, because I think I'm a pretty engaging teacher. Um, or, and I try to, I want to learn about my kids. So those kids I will check in with, um, and make sure I'm spending more one-on-one time with them either before class or after class, or if we're like doing like some transition activity, like go over, Hey, how are you doing? Um, what, what's an instrument you want to play today? And just like check in with them and say, and try to get them back in that way and say, you know, if you turn it around and stay on task, maybe at the end, you can play the drum for a couple minutes. And yeah. so then like, Oh, I can. Oh my goodness. And, um, I've also, uh, like had student leaders as like judges at my talent shows. And I remember this one student I had a few years ago. Um, he would walk up, not of my class, but he would walk out of all of his classes and to try to get him just back into his classroom setting, not even just in music, but in social studies and math and science, because I would go r- walk around the school and see him. I'm like, what class are you in? He's like, Oh, in math, but I don't, I don't need to be there for that. I'm like, you kind of, you kind of do. Um, and so I worked with his teachers and I was like, you know, if you stay in class, you can be a student judge at the talent show. And for the next few weeks up until the talent show, he was in class. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I actually, I I honestly didn't think that was going to work, but it it depends on the kid, like what they want to do. And like some kids want one-on-one music time, uh, with the drums and things like that. So that I've just tried to have like a hook and like create a hook for every kid. Obviously you can't do that with all like thousand of my kids, but I would say for like the top 10 to 20 kids who I'm trying to like really reel back in, like that's, that's been really helpful. So you described taking material that you've learned abroad or from your life experiences and bringing it into the classroom. So what do you, and this could be a good, good launch point to talk about your, the books you're writing, the music you're writing, the curricula you're writing. So what do you, what do you use when you teach? Do you, you know, open up a silver burdette? Oh no. You know, <laughs> book? yeah. So go ahead. Tell us, bring us, bring us through that. Oh my goodness. No, I actually saw, some of those in one of my classes and I mean they were dusty I was like oh no I'm not touching that I know what's in that because that's that's what I learned from when I was in school so I do know that you know I know what's in there anyway um I I do obviously follow um curriculum if it's set by my school I have worked in schools where my principal said this is what I want you to teach. And I followed it. I know in New York city, they give you the blueprint book and they're like, this is what you need to do. Um, and I worked in other schools where they said, you know, this is what you're doing. And I've said, okay, you know, I work here. It's fine. I can, I can implement that. I know how to implement any kind of curriculum. And so, but I've also thankfully been in positions where I could be super creative as well. And I feel like, uh, I feel like that's the best type of environment because you're the music teacher. Um, why I know that some people who are developing and insisting that you use this curriculum that is set by either your city or your state um, or your district, 
sometimes they don't know, like they don't know your kids. They don't know your classroom. And I have my kids composing. I have my kids conducting. I have my kids performing. My kids beg me to have more performances in school. So obviously I'm reaching them. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like that, and I definitely understand, like it depends where you're teaching. Like I'm trying to engage my kids. And I think that a lot of places, um, at least where I've been and where I have colleagues teaching, they lose a lot of kids in music or the kids aren't interested. And I feel like if we get to know our kids better and like what they want to learn. And I know that I just, I've taught in New York city for so long. And I know that the whole idea in New York city is student centered learning. So I know this isn't true for every place in the country. And I know that I'm sure people from other areas outside of New York city will be listening, but in New York city, I know several years ago when I was in all these PDs in the city, they're like, we want the kids in front of the room. We don't want the teachers teaching, yeah. you know, for standing up there for 30 minutes. So I do understand that it's different regardless of where you are. But um, so that's why I think it's totally changed my teaching. I think that it's helped me build relationships with my kids. But I definitely am not um, just following one book. I use my experiences. I also do uh, buy music online. I'm also like... Bring, I'm always researching and seeing like what new composers are out there, but I also have my kids um, composing in in class as well. So we're um, doing student compositions. I compose a lot in the classroom. I pull from a lot of different places. I pull from a lot of world music books. Got it. I was just checking my audio there. Can you, can you hear me? I can. Hello. Good, 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 good. good. (laughs) Check one, two. Okay, good. Just got to make sure. I had Back. I had this I had this fear that it, that it wasn't recording my side, but anyway, oh, no. we, we, we shall find out. So hopefully, so you're creating your own. You're looking at standards. You're going by the guidelines of what you're given within a school, and so on. And and now, how does this lead you to you're composing your own songs? Are you doing it on the job, and then you're compiling? Are you are you uh, sharpening the saw on the job and? writing finishing the songs at home or what's what's going on and then and then tell us more about the stuff you're writing and the, and the books you're publishing and so on okay Ooh, that's a lot so um I think that it depends on obviously the year how creative I am how much time I have um I wasn't writing at school it would be more when I was in the class I was teaching and then I would think of an idea or something that I would want to tell my kids but then I would sing it to them. So it was kind of more like I would just create these like really short jingles, more like jingles in the classroom. And I'm like, okay, I want them to get up and I want them to move like this or like we're doing tempos. And so it was more like I was composing around my directives. So Mm -hmm. I've always composed. I've been composing music since middle school, but honestly, no one has... Those are closet compositions. <laughs> they are not on the internet. You cannot search Colette Hebert 1990s and see my and hear my songs. Um, thankfully, those aren't anywhere. Those are just in my closet. But, but recently, I would say in the last year, and this is going back on our on our um, on the last question you asked me about creativity and curriculum. I feel like in this past school year, I was able to be way more creative in the classroom. My kids were also extremely talented. And so they wrote a lot of great music, but it was a very relaxed and comfortable space. I felt, 
Um, and I know my kids felt like that because they were up and performing and engaged and I kept an open dialogue and I was teaching pre-K through eighth. So every level is different. Um, obviously I wasn't having like a lot of discussions with my four-year-olds, but I was always moving and still creative, but I'd always, I would always think of like super creative ways to get them involved. And so I didn't go into the past school year thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book this year, or I'm going to write my first song book this year. I've written a book. So I hadn't written a song book before. (laughs) Um, So I was sitting there and I would just like start thinking of these like jingles and I started um, doing them throughout the year. And then I realized the kids loved them and it would just be more like I'm sitting at the piano um, waiting for them to like settle down or like 30 seconds of music. And then I would like add words to the music. I was like vamping on the piano and I'm like, Oh, it's like a song. And then I would have my kids like improving over me. And it started that way just in the classroom. But I felt like because it was such a comfortable space and my kids were composing and they were really inspirational and talented. Like I would just have these ideas pop into my head and then, you know, COVID happened in March. And so then I was home and, um, that changed obviously. And I was just sitting here and I was like, Oh my goodness, my, like obviously teaching change. We're all virtual teaching now and distance learning. And so at first it was like, a wake up call. Like, what am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) And then I'd also written down all my songs. I hadn't like notated them at all this year, but I wrote down the lyrics because I would go back. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just wrote five songs today. And then the next day I'd be like, Oh, I just wrote like three more songs. And so I, I said to myself, you know, I have to write these lyrics down because I'm going to forget. Um, I always have a lot of like projects and stuff going on. So if I don't write stuff down immediately, like in a week, I'll be like, Oh, I, I wrote a good song like a week ago. Right, I don't remember yeah. any of the words, but I, I felt like sing, if- sing those into my voice notes on in the phone. Yeah. And as long as I have the words down, I felt like, oh, that will be helpful. And like, I'll be able to like, remember. Um, so then I was, I, you know, I've been home for the last couple months and obviously not making music in groups or the collaborative setting. So I've been thinking of side projects to keep me busy. So I was, you know, obviously it was virtual teaching and that was interesting and like doing virtual choir videos and like having my choir rehearsals online and things like that. And just, trying to stay inspired and motivated. And then a couple months ago, I thought, oh my goodness, I wrote 10 songs this year. I think I had like 10, 12 songs. And then, um, yeah, that happened. And then I start like writing them down and the lyrics and notating them musically. And then over the last couple of weeks, I've been editing my songbook and it ended up being... I just was like doing the layout on my publisher site today. It ended up being 55 pages of 21 original songs in seven languages. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, But it's 21 original songs in seven different languages. And um, I did a What's the name of it? Sorry. It's a working title, actually, since it's not published yet. But as of right now, I don't want people to like Google it and then be like, what is this book? It's not even available. So when when is it coming out, though? Why don't you let us know? Like, or or, or about what? Yeah. Hopefully by by the end of the month, I actually have like all the songs, lesson plans. There's a lesson plan to go with every song because I know that I teach in a very um, unique and uh, dynamic way. So I always try to add like different elements to my teaching. So I wrote a lesson plan for each. So if like a new teacher starting out or a sub is in the class, um, or something like that, like it's very easy for someone to pick up 
the book and the way I laid it out, it's a lesson Love plan that. and then the song. So you don't have to turn pages because I hate turning pages. Right. Um, so right now the title is Miss Adair's World Songbook. And hopefully that's what I stick with because I just announced it. And honestly, everything is done on my end. I am going to shout out my illustrator who's amazing, but my illustrator, because I, I hadn't intended on being 55 pages when it started, this was 10 songs in a songbook, And, um, it's someone I've worked with for years and I asked him to do my illustrations. I did meet with a bunch of different illustrators, but I thought, you know, I love cartoons. We yeah. need some cart. We need some cartoons in this yeah. book. And so Honestly, when I did ask him a couple months ago, I said it's 10 songs, maybe some, you know, world cartoons, and then it's 55 pages. So when he sent me his illustrations the other day, I said, you know, I'd love to have like several more because like the book is way bigger than I thought it was going to be. And so honestly, I'm, I'm waiting for my illustrator right now. So he did tell me that he would send me several more cartoons by next week. So Honestly, I do want to get it out, but I also think that once I release it, like it'll be exciting as well, but I want to make sure it's like a comprehensive guide and includes that visual part of it too, because yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've picked up music handbooks in the past where, you know, you pick up a music book and uh, it's just lesson plans and you're like, okay, this is exciting. But you know, I like, I, def I definitely like the idea, for instance, my, um, I would, what you, I'm a weak piano player. I'm, a, I'm always struggling. So I, I like material that I can open up and either do rhythmically or play it on guitar, or maybe the kids are playing instruments. It's not all on me to accompany them in, in that regard. So I like this kind of out of the box idea that, that a substitute can, can do, you know, maybe even somebody who doesn't, who's not really a musical expert could do it. It should be that easy. I feel. Yeah, it's so important. But then I thought of another thing in the past couple of days too, because I was in, I get these ideas from these music teacher forums I'm in and these, these teachers will ask questions or they'll ask for like help or say like, this is what they really love. And I get ideas from that, those, because I'll see what is popular now or like what people want. And so that's kind of actually given me a direction for my book because I mean, it went from 10 songs and then I realized, oh, like people want to see a lesson plan. Like they want to see, like, they're not going to think about it the same way I did. I wrote it, but I know how I teach teach right. it but if I write the lesson plan they'll know how to break it down and how to teach the song yes. or like the conducting patterns and things like that and so I think that seeing what people want is really important too but like a lot of people are asking for sub plans because you know a lot of virtual teaching um, will happen so they want ideas for the virtual setting so it actually has a virtual teaching and uh, social distancing section as well. And I think it's, I think it's just something that like kind of came together, not because I was planning it, but um, I just really wanted to get my ideas down. And I think that it's, it's been exciting for me, but also it's given me like a project to focus on. So it sounds like it's the natural culmination of how you work, you know, I mean, you're going to improv stuff in class and that's going to become a seedling of an idea later and so on. Right. Things just happen. Yeah. I mean, I know people probably think I plan a lot because I get a lot of projects done in short amounts of time, but I just have to keep busy. And it's not about like, oh, I need to like produce like a hundred projects by the end of the week. It'll be like, what do I want to do this week? I really want to interview a new musician and I want to like write another article or like, I know, um, you know, do more presentations. It, it kind of like falls in my lap. Um, but it's been, and I've had time obviously to focus on, you know, writing more music and um, developing that. But I think it's also helpful because I have 
lesson plans and songs, like going into the school year, I already have lesson plans for 21, you know, 21 different classes. So, I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't just been like, I, I have a lot of time. I want to, you know, create something. It's been like the, I would actually use this in my class. So I think that, um, things that I can use or will help me like with research purposes or just planning ahead. I think that's important, but it's also enjoyable too. And I think that's the really exciting part about, you know, our jobs and being musicians. It's like, you're working, but at the same time, it's, it's fun. Like it's fun to explore and meet musicians and collaborate and work with illustrators and be like, Hey, yeah. I need a picture of a, of a pumpkin. Can you give me a picture of a pumpkin? You're not, you're not, you're not trying to fill your calendar with, with entertainment or fantasy football or something. It's a, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of projects you want to get out. Right. And, and so. Um, well, fantasy football, I'm sure people think that's exciting. Like know, if, that's your, if that's your I passion. Friends. I have I, friends who do it. And, uh, and, and for me, I feel like as long as I can be in front of my instruments and, recording something I'm, I'm okay so they got theirs and I got mine right so exactly like maybe fantasy football to someone is like their passion and that's not, like we're not going to offend any fantasy football people here though right hopefully not well <laughs> no because I was going to counter your statement by saying I do know people who like they're very passionate about fantasy football yeah. but like I, I'm not one of those people I'm very passionate about music and you know everyone I feel like has their own passion and like when you're following that then you're you're happier I mean I think there's a lot going on there's a lot like the world is changing but like that's one of the many ways that's kept me focused and grounded and sane over the past few months is by having projects and like a project like this like yes I did plan originally on having my song book out like at the beginning of July but at the same time like it's keeping me busy like it gives me something to focus on so I think that like when you find your passion, regardless of if that's music or fantasy football or right. something else, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing that and focusing on that, then it can like create a great experience for you. So we're going to, we're going to have to reconvene for part two sometime. <laughs> okay, definitely. Because this was, this was very, very enjoyable. And um, before we go, how can people find you? Tell us a little bit about your website. Sure. What can they learn? And then we'll wrap it up. We'll say goodbye and we'll look forward to, because there's, there's, there's a lot more that we could talk about. I'm sure. Yes. And we definitely have a lot of topics we can cover. And and also please tell everybody about your podcast and how to find your podcast as well. Yes. Well, first my podcast is called Colette's Music Hour and you can search for it on Anchor, Spotify, and there's a bunch of other podcast apps actually you can use. Um, you, as you remember, were actually interviewed by me yes, on my podcast. So that if you fun. would like to hear Brian be interviewed, you can pop over to my channel and my podcast. There um, you go. Please do. <laughs> it was very, it was very exciting to have a chat with you on that too. And also on my website, I have a link to my podcast as well. And all of my work can be found through my website. My website is ColetteAbearPianist.com. It's there are several ways to spell my first and last name. So I will spell it out for you. Do it's it. Colette, <laughs> Colette, C-O-L-E-T-T-E, Hebert, H-E-B-E-R-T, pianist, only one way to spell that, dot com. And then you can see 
my website that I actually revamped this year as well, because I figured, you know, everyone's virtual, everyone's internet based now, you know, it's, I think it's important to have an online presence. And like, even through podcasts, I feel like people, you know, there's a lot of popular podcasts now and, you know, it's a, it's a way to connect. I think that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Well, folks, we're going to leave it there for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and please remember to subscribe. You've been listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music were provided by me and my band Treat and Release, which is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me and my work, I can be found on all social media platforms or by visiting my website at briandohertydrummer.blogspot.com. Thanks again for listening and see you soon. My mechanic said there's